Are we going to pray now and ask for God's help? Would you join me? Heavenly Father, sometimes your word, even the words of our Lord Jesus are confronting and would have offended people. But Lord, I pray that you wouldn't let our ears be closed to what you say today. Pray, Lord, that you might open our ears and our hearts, might teach us what is true about you and about your son and about the way to live your way. Please give us a willingness to change where we're convicted of our sin. Pray, Lord, that you do a work of grace by your spirit in all of our lives. Pray, Lord, that by your spirit you might speak through me what is true and faithful. Help me to speak with the power of your spirit and for the glory of Jesus. Amen. Please keep your Bibles open at Matthew uh, chapter 23. I think one of the issues so many Australians have with politicians is the hypocrisy. So many hypocrites who break their promises and don't keep their word, how can they be trusted? But it's not just politicians, is it? It's, it's pastors and church leaders who've failed to keep their word and stay faithful to their wives or say no to sexual immorality. And yet it's not just politicians or pastors, is it? We can be hypocrites. We can be hypocrites. And maybe some of us, like that slogan says, are living two different lives. Maybe we feel morally superior and then we even fail to meet our own expectations. I think we can all fail to practice what we preach or do what we say. So hypocrisy is a problem or a danger for us all. And today Jesus calls us to reject it. It's just days before the Passover and Jesus' crucifixion. And after repeated testing and questioning by the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus has silenced them. He's still in the temple. And now he speaks to the crowd and to the disciples. But we wonder if the Pharisees are still present, still listening to what he'll now say about them. Sure, sure word got back to them soon enough, regardless. We're covering a large passage this morning. We won't have time to cover every detail. You're welcome to chat with me afterwards if you have questions. But I hope the main points and themes will be helpful for you. The scribes, in verse 2, were trained theologians and teachers of the law. Many of them were also Pharisees. The word Pharisee means separated ones, uh, for their devotion set them apart. At their best, they had a godly passion for keeping God's law, but most, with a few exceptions, most had twisted God's word into a legalistic, works-based self-righteousness. And that brings us to point one today. They're proud, self-centered hypocrites. Jesus says that they're seated in the chair of Moses, and that may have referred to a special seat in the synagogue for the senior teacher, but also refers to their authority to teach. And when Jesus says, do whatever they tell you, he doesn't mean that absolutely. Because that would actually contradict Jesus' own words. Back in chapter 15, we saw that Jesus rebuked them for following their traditions over God's commands. And if people do whatever they teach, as we'll see, they'll end up being 
shut out of heaven and bound for hell. But as far as they teach God's word and call people to obey the teaching of Moses, the Jews should observe it. Jesus' issue is scribes and Pharisees don't practice what they teach. They don't practice what they preach. I know of people who tragically have turned away from Christ because their pastor or their youth group leader committed terrible immorality or was guilty of blatant hypocrisy, fallen away from the faith. When that happens, it can really shake you. But verse 3 tells us that people who sin and fail and even fall can actually still teach true things. And so a person's failure doesn't mean that God's word that they may have taught is still not true. It can still be true. But religious leaders not practicing what they preach is a, a huge and horrible thing. Maybe your mind, like mine, goes to pedophile priests and pastors. Such abhorrent and sinful behaviours have brought great harm to people. Great shame to Christ's name. Christian leaders have a high calling and practising what we preach is vital. So I say elders, growth group leaders, Youth and Sunday school teachers, Christian leaders, your integrity is vital. Your integrity is vital. Don't be a hypocrite. But, but it's not just Christian leaders that this relates to. Parents not practicing what they teach their children has turned children, their children, away from Christ. I've spoken to too many kids for whom that's been true. I mean, the child asks, why would I want church? Why would I want Christ if that's the life it results in? Your behavior in your family, your behavior in your workplace, your friendship circle, it always matters. And so I ask, is there an area of your life where you say one thing and do another? Where you're not honestly living as a Christian? And is there an area of your life which needs to change? Jesus then says the scribes and Pharisees, they put heavy loads that are hard to carry on people. They required, they required unbiblical standards and traditions that went beyond God's word. We're going to think more about that in my next point. But Jesus is saying they heap rules on people that are oppressive. A legalism that is oppressive. Whereas, do you remember Matthew chapter 11, verse 28? We were there months ago that Jesus came to lift heavy burdens off people and give them rest. Have you found rest in Jesus? Will you keep finding rest by relying on him? Pharisees in verse 5 do everything to be seen by others. Phylacteries were little boxes with scriptures in them. The principle for them comes from Deuteronomy 6. But little boxes with scriptures in them that were tied to the forehead 
at prayer times. The Pharisees made their boxes big. Their tassels on their robes, which Numbers 15 said they should have, they were made big too. Showy righteousness. They're they're show-offs. Show-offs who parade their piety, who highlight their own holiness, and they like they like the best and most honourable places at the banquets, the front seat at the synagogue. They like to be greeted and acknowledged in public. They want to be seen by people, show off before people, be noticed by and acknowledged by people. I wonder if we want those same things. But I think we like to be noticed and liked. We want to fit in at work. And in our friendship circle, at school, you want to fit in with your peers and not be left alone. We want to fit in and be liked on social media. Some people count their likes as a measure of their worth. Is being seen and liked driving your words and your actions? Is that... And is that what matters to God? In verses 8 to 10, Jesus says you're not to be called rabbi, teacher, father, or instructor. Now, it's not, children, it's not saying you can't call your dad father or your school teacher a teacher. It's saying that Jesus is the, Jesus the Messiah is the ultimate and highest teacher. None will eclipse him, and no Christian teacher should contradict him. In fact, we who teach his word, we should teach his word. Great commission, we should teach people to obey his commands. The context is the Pharisees and scribes, they liked people to look up to them. They wanted people to use certain titles to refer to them. And Jesus here rebukes their proud desire for special recognition, their proud desire to be above others. Titles are not evil. I'm happy to be called a pastor. Even more happy to be called Clint. But from this, I don't believe that pastors should be called father, as Roman Catholic priests are. And I don't want to be called reverend, which means a revered one. May we all want to focus on and give the glory to Christ. And when we think about verses 11 and 12, about being a humble servant, Christ is the supreme example of that. And he's also actually the cause and the foundation for our humility and our service. Back in Matthew chapter 20, Jesus said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus died to give his life as a ransom for us. His life was the payment to free us from eternal death and judgment. He humbled himself to death on a cross so we could be forgiven for all our sins, 
for all the times that you and I have been hypocritical, proud. And it is looking to and trusting in Christ, the crucified one, our our humble saviour, which is the cure to our pride and hypocrisy. If you know you're guilty of this, you struggle with this, looking to him is the cure for our hypocrisy and pride. When we know the depths of our sin, we will and we, we need to turn to Christ in faith and trust. And when we know we're forgiven in him, we will stop focusing on ourselves, big noting ourselves and wanting to be seen by others. So you see, humility will lead to self-forgetfulness. Humility is not having a low opinion of yourself, in a sense, putting yourself down. It's having an accurate opinion of ourselves, comparison to our maker and saviour. So humility leads to self-forgetfulness, that we don't think about ourselves because we're so focused on and thinking about the good of others, the good and glory of our Lord and Saviour and God. So humility is what Christ calls for. I'm really encouraged by the humble servants I see at this church at Bundy. People who have real gifts in different areas, people who use those gifts, but they're also actually willing to just serve where it's needed. Cleaning, the AV desk, welcoming, serving away without being seen. I mean, aren't Aren't they a great example for us all? Well, what about humility and integrity at work and in the world? Steve McAlpine was the author of this book, Being the Bad Guys, How to Live for Jesus in a World that Says You Shouldn't. He talks about, talks about living in a way that makes sure the mud won't stick. McAlpine speaks of the example of Daniel from Daniel chapter 6. Daniel's example of being faultless. And McAlpine says, being faultless is powerful. Not just because, not just in what you won't do, but in what we choose to do. If after refusing to be swayed by ethical matters, you are scorned, disciplined, demoted, or even let go from your job, it must be in spite of the way you lived, not because of it. He says we must cultivate exemplary, grace-filled and generous lives that challenge any allegation that our beliefs lead us to be mean-spirited, hostile and dangerous. He calls us to blessing another Obedience, blessing others, obedience. So I ask, will you choose to be humble and say no to pride and self-centeredness and hypocrisy? Point two is blind, hell-bound hypocrites. Verse 13 begins the second section of the chapter, contains these seven woe statements by Christ. Woe was a, a funeral lament, uh, expressed your mourning, your sadness. 
But here it's also saying a, a terrible fate is coming. Judgment is almost here. Be warned. Be sad. And get ready by repenting. Repent now. I think like a high-pressure water gun blasts away the dirt and grime to reveal the true colours of a car, Jesus blasts away the layers covering the Pharisees to reveal their true colours here. Six times he calls the scribes and Pharisees hypocrites. Literally, it's a word that means actor, someone who's even wearing a mask. And hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another, or it's giving a certain impression, while on the inside, the reality is something different. It's a different story. We're going to move through these seven woes quickly. Jesus says, verse 13, watch out. Judgment is coming because you shut the door of heaven in people's faces. You don't go into the kingdom of God and you stop others entering in. The Pharisees made salvation sound super hard. They added lots of rules under God's commands to try and put a fence around it. I mean, they actually had the good intention of adding extra rules so you wouldn't even get close to obeying God's commands, to disobeying. You wouldn't even get close to disobeying God's commands. But you see, their rules, called the tradition of the elders, actually ended up becoming just as important as God's word. And they piled these rules and demands on people while at the same time actually rejecting God's rule over their own lives and rejecting God's appointed king, the Lord Jesus. So they refused to repent and come to Jesus. They also refused to accept the evidence of who he was, his miracles. They refused to accept the, the prophecies of the Old Testament that had already been fulfilled in him and by him. Theirs was actually a religion of get right with God by works. And it kept them from heaven. We too, we cannot be saved by being good enough, by trying hard enough. The Pharisees, they are, they're passionate, they're enthusiastic. Verse 15 talks of them traveling over land and sea to get a convert. Jesus says they only end up leading people to hell with them. Isn't that like the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses of today? Like the Muslims of today? Muslims of our day? You see, being sincere and passionate for what you believe will not save you. Jesus' words here are pretty confronting. They're full on. I know. But a rejection of Jesus with a try harder, be better way to salvation will not work. It will not save. And people actually need to know that. Imagine a man wakes up one day with chest pain. It persists. He goes to his doctor and tests show that he has an aortic aneurysm that could rupture at any time. And if it does, it will cause rapid death. Suppose the doctor's a sensitive man. 
He hates to see people shattered by bad news. So he calls the man in and says, Sir, I can see why you're in pain. You have a condition that arises from time to time. It should just resolve itself naturally, and after it does, you will feel no pain. After he's dead, he will feel no pain. I mean, such kindness would be irresponsible, especially if there's a surgical procedure that can rectify the defect. It's painful to bring a true diagnosis. It's painful to endure surgery. But both are necessary if the patient is going to survive. So a good physician reveals the bad news. They don't think if I say something, the patient will be upset. They'll think I'm such a negative person. I'm being so offensive. No, the good physician plainly declares the dark truth and presents the plan for a cure. Jesus, the physician, does that here. As should we. See, spiritual rebellion has consequences. We're going to see that in the sermons over the next couple of weeks. If judgment is coming, it is loving and compassionate to say so. And maybe we need to take this to heart and think about this when it comes to our own conversations with people who aren't Christians and aren't saved. So is there a friend that you need to warn? From verse 16, Jesus repeatedly calls the Pharisees blind, blind guides. They're blind to what matters most, blind to God's truth. Verse 16 to 22, they're all about taking oaths. And Jesus says, I know the games you're playing when it comes to your deceptions and breaking their promises. You know, just can you picture it? Oh, I swore that promise on the temple and not the gold of the temple, so I don't need to keep it. Or it's like thinking, I'll promise that, but my fingers are crossed behind my back, so I don't need to keep it. That's what's going on here. Jesus highlights their absurd nitpicking about words to avoid keeping their promises. He said in chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, we don't have to swear oaths at all. I mean, it's best not to. Jesus wants his people just to show integrity and real reliability. He wants his people to be faithful to their word, speak the truth. Do what we say. And is that you? You're someone who keeps your promises. If you say something, you do it. Even when the heat is on. Even when it costs. Instead of hypocrisy, God wants integrity. Verse 23, the The Pharisees are rebuked for majoring on the minors. The Old Testament promised that God's people should tithe, that is give 10% of their income. It seems the the Jews, these Jewish Pharisees, tithed not just 10% of what they earned, but also 10% of the herbs they bought at the market or grew in their garden. 
But those man-made practices were never commanded. And in trying to go over and above, in trying to be the best of the best, Jesus says they had actually neglected what mattered more. They failed to obey the more important commands and laws about justice and mercy and faithfulness. This verse in Micah chapter 6 verse 8, that came to my mind. Justice for the poor, mercy to those in need, and a faith in God that leads to faithfulness, faithfulness to your word, faithfulness in life. They're things that that matter to God. As Jesus says, you strain out the gnat, but gulp down the camel. You're straining out the tiny insect, and you're willing to swallow this mammoth, unclean animal. You stress about the tiny things and forget what mattered more. Remembering what we looked at last week, they are failing to love God with their all and love their neighbor as themselves. Two greatest commands. And so it really is a lack of justice and mercy and faithfulness that's not coming from their hearts that, that Jesus expands on then in verse 25. He says, you clean the outside of the cup, but inside you're bad. Just thinking about this. I was picturing moldy pieces of old food inside the cup. And he's saying like that, inside their hearts is greed and self-indulgence. Saying you act clean and holy on the outside, but inside you're rotten and selfish and sinful. Greed here is literally the word for robbery. I might connect with what Jesus says in Luke 20 in the parallel passage about the Pharisees devouring widows' houses. It probably means that they were pressuring poor widows to give more in the offering. Similarly, in verse 27, Christ calls them whitewashed tombs. Practice was a month before the Passover feast, the Jews would actually whitewash or paint in white the tombs to mark them out so that no one would accidentally touch them and get ceremonially unclean in the week before the Passover and then miss out on gathering for that feast. But just like those tombs were white on the outside, full of death on the inside, The Pharisees seem righteous, but inside they're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. I ask, is that you? Are you at church, even here today, polite, seem godly, but inside, honestly, are you full of hypocrisy, greed, self-indulgence? Are you living to please and satisfy your own desires. Maybe you are someone who's working, working hard so you can be saving, shopping, resting, holidaying. Or you're focused on just staring at that screen or always wanting more. Whatever it is, it's all for your pleasure. Or maybe thinking about the sin that you might be filled with, it's not that. Maybe 
your issue is actually you're filled with anger or fear, resentment or immorality with no commitment to obey God's law. And I ask, do you need to repent? Now, a believer in Christ will not be fully like these Pharisees and filled with sin. But we can still struggle with these things. So do you need to stop, turn back to Christ, turn away from your sin and cry out for God to change you? Jesus keeps focused on the internal when he says the Pharisees building and decorating prophets' tombs, they seem righteous, but again, it's fake. Jesus says you look after the prophets' graves, but you're just like the people who put them there. Verse 32, he's saying, really, go ahead and finish what you started. For they were planning the murder of the greatest prophet, the Lord Jesus who spoke God's word. And they'll soon hurt and kill his followers, verse 34, like Stephen and the Apostle Paul experienced in the book of Acts. Jesus says all of God's righteous people who'd been killed from Abel to Zechariah, I think the point is from A to Z, all of them, the guilt of that's going to be charged to you. And isn't that because these Jewish leaders had had the greatest light in the world. The presence and the teaching and the miracles and the glory of the Son of God right in their presence. And they shut their eyes to him. More than that, they wanted to end him. So they are guilty. Can you be more guilty? And so Jesus says, snakes, how can you escape being condemned to hell? Judgment is coming, and so you should be warned. Thank God that's not the end of the story. Our final brief point is hope for hypocrites. Look at verse 37 and please notice the change of tone. Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The repetition of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, it's communicating a strong emotion. Can you see and can you sense Jesus' compassion here? Despite the sins of the Jewish leaders and the majority of Jews who were following their teaching, Jesus is filled with tenderness and not rage. He longs for them to repent, to turn to him and come to him. Like the mother chicken, mother hen wanting to gather the chicks under her wings when danger comes. Like that, the Saviour Jesus loves the Jews. He has a, a deep affection for them. He grieves over their sin and their rebellion. He desires their salvation. 
for the great majority, they will not repent. They're not willing to come under their parents' protective care, not willing to come to Jesus to be saved, forgiven, saved from the wrath to come. They reject the love and compassion of the King Jesus. They reject his offer of salvation and protection. And so Jesus says their house will be left desolate. Be really clear next week that Jesus is talking about what's going to happen in 70 AD when the Roman armies will come and destroy the city of Jerusalem and burn and smash the temple. And so, and that event is really a taste, a prefiguring of the, the judgment and desolation of the world that will happen when Jesus Christ returns. And it's at that time that his disciples will say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those of us who know Jesus came in God's name, those of us who trust in and follow him, we will praise him on that day. It should be a day of rejoicing when our Savior comes. And friends, the the message for us is this. Jesus will receive you if you come to him in faith. He'll save and protect you from the judgment of hell. He'll save and protect from the judgment of hell everyone who comes to him. Everyone who's willing to turn to him and trust in him. If you're trusting in your own performance and obedience, stop. Come to Jesus. If you know you're guilty of hypocrisy and sin, as I know I am, turn and come and cling to Jesus. Keep clinging to him. Place your confidence in the compassion of the crucified and risen Christ. Because Jesus offers hope for hypocrites, real and sure hope of salvation and forgiveness. And if Christ has saved you from hell, Christian, and he shelters you under his wings always, then Christian, reject hypocrisy and live with integrity. Reject hypocrisy and live for your Lord. Christian leaders, let's reject hypocrisy and live with integrity. All with the grace of God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we... None of us measure up to your standards. As we thought about last week, none of us have loved you with our all or our neighbor as ourselves any day, let alone every day. We, we say we follow Christ, and yet, Lord, often we, so often we don't follow him and obey him. We pray, Father, that you might give us grace and the help of your spirits to turn away from sin and hypocrisy and to cling to Christ for that protection and forgiveness and salvation he offers us here in this passage. We pray, Lord, that by your spirit, you might help us as his people to be continually repenting of our sin each day, 
living a life of integrity so that we might bring glory and honour and not shame to our Lord and Saviour Jesus, through whom we ask these things. Amen.